And so, Father, we thank you for how great your love is for us. And I pray that, Lord God, this morning we would uh, surrender to your love. Lord God, uh, your word, Scripture says your word is like fire, and we know that your word is a sword. It's like a knife. And God, sometimes I feel despairing because I feel like you asked me to come into a room and swing your sword, and it's so sharp that it just cuts in every direction. And then the idea is that I'd sew everybody up in the span of 40 minutes, and we'd go on with our day. God, I thank you that this is Pentecost Sunday when we remember how you sent your spirit on the church into that jar of clay, those, those early disciples. And we pray that you would do that now and that, Lord God, you would do all the cutting and you would do all the sowing, that you would redeem us, Lord God, for your purposes. And Lord Jesus, if there's anything that I say that is a lie about you, I pray that you would just, you would just cut it off, that you would stop it. Um, so I invite you to take me out if you want to, Lord God. But I thank you uh, that you are relentless love. And uh, Lord, um, everything you do is love. Uh, even when it seems like, like you hate, even, even your hate is ultimately love. Um, so Lord Jesus, uh, I pray that you would help us to trust our Father. In your name, amen. At the very start of this message, I want you to hear me very well. Our Father adores you, absolutely adores you. In the name of Jesus, you have been forgiven. And please, there's the third thing, please don't listen to this message unless you make it your intention to sit all the way through to the end. Psalm 139, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Have you ever said no one, no one understands? No one knows me? God knows you. God understands. But do you know you? Do, do you understand you? You know, God makes sense to me, the idea that there is a being greater than which none can be conceived, that there is an uncreated creator, that there is necessary beingness upon which all contingent reality is based. Philosophically, God makes some sense to me, and geology makes some sense to me. The earth makes, creation makes some sense to me. Dust makes some sense to me. But me, <laughs> or the eye that observes me or is conscious of me, I'm pretty mysterious to me. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. I think that I formulate my words. 
But that's only because someone has thought and is formulating me with his word. He knows what I truly want to say because he knows who I am. And he knows who I am not. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before. Acts 17, to the philosophers in Athens, uh, Paul says, in him, and he even quotes one of their philosophers, in him we live and move and have our being. God constantly surrounds us such that we are like a baby in a womb wondering who it is and wondering, is there such a thing as, as a mother <laughs> or a father? And if there is, do they want me? You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. I can't comprehend it. I can't conquer it. I can't take this knowledge like it was fruit hanging from some tree. I can only receive this knowledge as a gift, like a seed planted in broken and fertile soil, or a seed perhaps planted in an unformed bunch of clay, ball of clay. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't take it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. King James, New King James Version translated hell. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. According to this verse, it seems that we cannot actually be separated from God. We can only believe that we're separated from God. In the words of C.S. Lewis, hell is a state of mind, and yet it is the deepest, darkest prison that there is, and most definitely a prison bondage. It's, it's believing that you're forsaken. That's what it is that you're forsaken and unwanted. Jesus came preaching repent. Repent, you know, means change your mind, change your thinking. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, writes Paul. Firstborn from the dead. It's like he came and, and preached to us in this womb of a world saying, our father, our father, our mother is, is closer than you know, closer than you can even imagine. You must be begotten from above and born anew. The whole creation groans in travel, waiting for the revelation of you, the children of glory. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, writes David. It's high. I can't attain it. I can't take it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Ruach, your, your breath. And that's such a fascinating question. Where shall I go from your breath? For you see, according to Scripture, in some utterly amazing way, that's what I am. God's breath. In a, in a bag of dust, <laughs> a, a, ball of, a ball of clay, 
And if you take Scripture seriously, as I do, you'll see that God's neshama, that's the verse in, in Genesis 2, that God's neshama is God's ruach, which is God's pneuma in Greek, which is God's spirit in English, and God's spirit is God. Why is God so preoccupied with you? Because, like, part of him is in you. And I suspect that part of him is the same as all of him, for he does not give his spirit according to measure, said Jesus. Part of him is in you, or you wouldn't even be a you, wondering what a you is. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence, literally your face? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall hold me and your right hand shall hold me. The Messiah is God's right hand. The strong right arm of the Lord, says, says Isaiah, and the Lord's face. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, my kidneys, my guts. It, it means my innermost feelings and passions. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and you are God's work. Do you see what that means? It means that you are wonderful. God knows you, and you are wonderful. And that word means like uniquely wonderful, set apart, different, unique in all of creation. You are marvelous, says God. Wonderful are your works, right, David? Writes David. My soul knows it very well, and you do know it very well. You do know it very well. That's why you get so offended when people reject you, because you see, they're not just rejecting you. They're rejecting the Spirit of God in you. Your soul knows it very well. You know it about you. And you're just learning it about your neighbor that rejects you. <laughs> Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, my, my goal. Your eyes saw my, my golem. Golem means something like unfinished ball of clay, or a lot of lexicons just say fetus, means fetus. Your eyes saw my fetus. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Jonathan is my firstborn. He was born uh, a little over five weeks early, and born after 24 hours of brutally intense labor, and I honestly was rather traumatized by the whole or ordeal. When I first caught a glimpse of John, he was screaming at the top of his lungs, and he looked like a kind of a, a bloody, slimy bruise and rather unformed, I remember thinking booger unformed substance. I, I literally remember thinking, gross. 
They cleaned him up, crying, screaming the whole time, screaming at the top of his lungs. They cleaned him up, put him in in my arms, still screaming at the top of his lungs. And I remember the nurse said, talk to him. He knows your voice. And I said, Scooter? And immediately he fell silent. Takes my breath away that he, 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 he knew my voice. I said scooter. I said, I said scooter because we didn't know that uh, he was a boy or, or a girl um, like God, so we called him Scooter. And, and a, few months, a few months earlier, I had taken a magic marker and drawn a face on Susan's belly. And, and every night before we'd, we'd go to sleep, I'd talk to her belly. I'd say, Scooter, you in there? I can't wait to meet you. I can't wait to eat ice cream with you. I can't wait to hold you in my arms. I can't wait to ride bikes with you. Scooter, Scooter, I love you. And when he was born, he knew my voice. Just think about that. I'd speak. And although he couldn't see me, touch me, or feel me in that womb of a world, everything would vibrate to the sound of my voice. And he knew my voice, my word. My word came to him in the womb, and he knew it. He knew me. It's a bit sobering to think that at the same time, perhaps in the very same hospital, babies were that were more developed than John, were being killed in in their womb of a world and then discarded as medical waste. Unwanted. Since 1973, something like 50 to 60 million babies or, or fetus have been aborted in the United States of America. If those 50 to 60 million are human beings, it's a holocaust, isn't it? I mean, even if only a small percent are human beings, because granted, only a small percent, something like 1% of abortions occur after the 24th week. Well, even if only a small percent are human, that, that would still be quite a lot of humans, right? If a fetus is a human being, well, it's a holocaust, isn't it? But... If a fetus is simply a part of a woman's body, then it isn't much different than 50 to 60 million appendectomies. I hear people say, it's my body. But, but any seventh grade biology student knows, no, that's the point. It's dependent on your body, but not your body. A fetus isn't simply a woman's body, but is it a somebody, a human? What makes a human a human? Is it independence from other humans? Because if so, none of us, except for maybe one or two hermits somewhere living in the mountains, none of us are humans. We're all dependent on each other. Is it rational thought? Are drunk people and stupid people human? Is it quality of life? 
If so, most of the rest of the world isn't human. Is it taking a breath that makes you human? Are, are folks on respirators human? If you were an impartial observer from another planet studying the United States of America, I think you would conclude that the thing that makes you a person is whether or not another person in a position of power wants you. But who's the person in the position of power? Is it Donald Trump? Is it Barack Obama? Is it the body politic? Or is it the mother? Or is there actually a God? Is it God? And why would God want an unborn baby? <laughs> or you? James 4, 5. Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? We know that the Spirit comes to us in the beginning as, as, as a breath in, in dust that makes us human. And we know that the Spirit comes to us through baptism and through uh, words spoken. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, said Jesus. We know that the Spirit comes at Pentecost, and this is Pentecost weekend when we remember how the Spirit fell on a jar of clay, a jar of dust called uh, the church. And, and every week the Spirit comes to us in wine that is blood and blood that is wine. And you know that's one way the breath comes to a baby in the womb of a woman with a child. The oxygen comes through the umbilical cord carried by the blood. This is all profoundly mysterious, but it must be the reason that God is so preoccupied with, with blood. The life, the, the ruach, the, the spirit is in the blood. And God's breath is in human blood. <laughs> For people are made, or they are being made, in the image of God with the breath of God. In the beginning, God breathed into the dust, and Adam, which means humanity, Adam uh, became a nephesh, a living, a living soul. In Scripture, killing a chicken is different than killing a child. And, and I suspect that's because a child has a spirit of God or has a spirit of God in a uni unique way. The child experiences consciousness and the ability to love and to be loved. That's the capacity to hear the voice of our Father, our Father who is love. And now, now you may say, well, <laughs> yeah, right, preacher. Read the Bible. God kills lots of children. If by that you mean he subjects them to, to death and numbers their days, that's entirely true. We just read that. But it's not because he doesn't want them, but precisely because he does want them. Because he jealously yearns over the spirit that he has made to dwell within them. Even in those terrifying passages in the Old Testament where entire cities of Canaanites are sacrificed to God, read closely and you'll discover that those people are offered to God because he wants them. 
And he jealously yearns over the spirit that he has made to dwell within them. The Lord only disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines us so that we might enjoy him forever. Ecclesiastes 11.5, Solomon wrote, son of David, Solomon wrote, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. I think that means that we really do not know when a lump of clay becomes a human being but we do know that it happens in the womb of a woman with child. You know, if you think that a house might contain a person, you guard that house, right? And yet, if the house itself is a person, if you've got a person inside of a person, it does get rather complicated. There's so much that we don't know, and yet I think there's one thing I have most definitely come to know. Several years ago, for more than, more than a decade, Susan and I worked and prayed with a friend who lost several children in the most horrifying ways that you could imagine. Some died as infants after they were born, and some died before they were born. In visions late at night, the evil one would appear to my friend and tell her that he had her children, that they were his. But through prayer, Jesus would bind the evil one, as we would pray. Jesus would bind the evil one, and he would reveal to our friend that he had her children. In fact, he would show them to her in, in his arms. You don't have to believe this. I believe it, because I was there. He would show them to her in his, his arms, and they each had names both the ones that had died after birth and the ones that had been aborted. He, he showed her that he had her children and that he adored her children and that they all adored her. For decades, she had mourned the loss of her children. Once I said to her, hey, ask Jesus, why are my children still young? As we prayed, she asked him, then she fell silent for a minute, and then with absolute wonder in her voice, she replied, I just heard Jesus say, they're waiting for you to raise them. <laughs> that wasn't bad news, that was wonderful news. And it will make you ponder the nature of time and eternity. They're waiting for you to raise them. She also learned that, that she wasn't single, that the Lord God is her husband and their father. And now all of that is a double-edged sword, isn't it? The fetus may very well have been your child, your baby. And that hurts. But listen closely. Jesus adores your baby. And he has your baby. He also adores you, but, 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 but will you let him have you? Or do you refuse to listen? You know, even if you've made your bed in Sheol, he will not leave you nor forsake you. You're his baby, his body, his bride, his temple. 
Well, I used to preach about abortion all the time years ago. I was looking back going, dang, I had all kinds of sermons on this. I used to preach about abortion all, all the time, and, and I told people that I was a one-issue voter. And, and I suppose I still am in the sense that every issue is about the sanctity of human life. It's just that the issue is far bigger and more complex than I first imagined, and I'm not convinced that legislation really has all that much to do with it. This is a graph that shows abortion rates since 1973 when Roe versus Wade became law. You'll notice that the abortion rate rose sharply from 1973 to 1979. I suppose that's the sad evidence that many people think that the government can provide you with the knowledge of good and evil. You'll also notice that the abortion rate has dropped since 1979 to a rate that appears to be even lower than 1973. So there may be forces far more powerful than the government or legislation at, at play. The question, is abortion right or wrong, is a different question than what should be our government's legislation in regard to abortion. Legislation matters, but, but our legislation is, is always imperfect. In the Old Testament, there's a great deal of legislation. But in the New Testament, God unleashes a far, far more powerful and effective weapon than the law. The law can only do so much, and much of the time, governments only, only make it worse. Now, people can argue all day about graphs and charts, and I've heard it said that 95% of statistics are just made up, okay? And I do not know what our government should do about the problems in the Middle East, but if this graph is only partly true, every American ought to sit up and pay close attention. The yellow represents American casualties on 9-11. The red represents American military casualties in Afghanistan and Iraq between 2001 and 2010. The blue represents Afghan and Iraqi civilian casualties between 2001 and 2010. It represents people that had nothing to do with 9-11 and, and were just as innocent as the people in the towers, or perhaps even an unborn baby. It represents human lives that were aborted with my tax dollars, not possible human lives. We know that they contained the breath of God. Do you think someone in power wants those Afghan and Iraqi teenagers bleeding to death? in the desert. How about immigrant families seeking asylum at our border? How about the poor? Some studies show that providing services for the poor is more effective in preventing abortions than, than legislation. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have legislation, but that's what it shows. How about teenage uh, girls that have been abused and raped that suddenly find themselves pregnant? Or how about teenage girls that sleep around because they know that they can just go get an abortion and they're utterly blind to the glory of God in human flesh? How about sinners? Does someone in power care for sinners? 
How about teenage boys that impregnate teenage girls and just walk away? How about politicians who divorce and marry women like trophies and sleep with strippers oblivious to the fact that they are temples of the living God? How about King David? Who basically raped Bathsheba, murdered her husband, and caused the death of his son, the son of David. How about an entire world that's implicated in all this utter disregard for the sanctity of human life, this utter disregard for the glory of God in temples of flesh? Jesus is the glory of God in a temple of flesh, and he said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. How about all the people that crucify the Messiah? Does someone in power care for us sinners? And what does he do about it? Are sinners human? Does God abort sinners? Even if sinners try to abort God, imagine that, does God abort sinners? Soon after we started this sanctuary, a friend who was new in the faith, she, she came and said to me one day, she said, you know, I never understood why evangelical Christians didn't abort all their children. And I said, um, okay. Could you help me a little bit understand what you mean by that? And she said, well, evangelical Christians believe that God loves all babies, right? And that all children under a certain age automatically go to heaven, right? And I said, yeah, many do. And evangelical Christians believe that unless a person makes the correct decision before their body dies, God will damn them to endless conscious torment, right? And I said, yeah, many do. And she said, well, it seems to me that if a Christian parent really loved their children more than, than themselves, they'd certainly, well, they'd certainly abort their children in order to ensure that God would not abort their children, not just abort them, but torture them forever without end. If they loved a child, they'd kill that child, even if it meant that they'd be damned to hell in that child's place. So I guess this is the question. Does God want us? Or will he abort most of us? Did you notice that David seemed to be talking about babies formed in the womb, and yet at the very same time he's talking about Adam, or humanity, formed in the depths of the earth, even in Sheol, you see, a fetus may be far more human than you know. And a full-grown man may be far less human than you know. Scripture says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That means that at least everyone who lived before Christ, and maybe all of us who live now in this womb of a world, are like golem. We know now, we know, well, we know not. We know a little, but we know not how the Spirit comes to us, but that it does in the beginning at baptism, in communion even now as I preach the Word. The Spirit comes to us and fashions us in the image of relentless love. But none of us, none of us are fully human until we freely choose the good, until we choose love and freedom, until each and every breath is nothing but praise for the relentless love that is our God. And so it seems to me 
that the greatest Holocaust was not the Holocaust committed against the Jews in the 1940s, and the greatest Holocaust is not the one being committed right now against babies. I think it's the Holocaust that occurs when people speaking in the name of God declare that God will not only abort most of humanity, but endlessly torture, torment most of his children because he no longer wants them. The greatest Holocaust is committed by people who refuse to forgive. And check this out. We not only commit this Holocaust against each other, we commit this Holocaust against ourselves. And Jesus taught that unless you forgive, you cannot know forgiveness. Instead, what happens? You sink deeper and deeper into Sheol, where people weep and gnash their teeth. But God does not abort you. He descends into that place with you. David writes, even if I make my bed in Sheol, even there your right hand, your right arm holds me. Jesus is the right hand of God. Jesus is the word of God, and Jesus descends into hell that you would know. Our Father always wants you. I mean, maybe you're hearing his voice right now. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance, writes writes David. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake. Huh, he'd been asleep. I awake, and I'm still with you. So Jesus has the babies. Jesus has the Iraqi boys bleeding to death in the desert. It turns out that you can abort a baby and you can abort your enemies with a gunshot to the head, but you cannot abort God's plan for your enemies or God's plan for your baby. And their days have been written in a book. And the book ends with everything new. And you're not at the end until you wake and see it and praise God for it. Every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, praising the Lamb on the throne. And yet right now, you may not feel like praising God. I fully expect you to be angry. Angry at those who do not respect the sanctity of an infant's life or angry at those that do not respect the sanctity of a woman's life, or angry at those that do not respect the sanctity of a soldier's life, or angry at those who do not respect the sanctity of your life, and your soul knows it full well. There is something absolutely sacred, wonderful, and marvelous about you and those around you. See, your anger and even your hatred is a product of your love for the sanctity of human life. It's just not perfect love. Or perfect hatred. Completed hatred. Maybe you're angry at me for raising this topic and not telling you how to vote. Or what to do with your anger. Ah! David continues. Verse 19. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name, Lord God, in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked, any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Did you notice what just happened? David made his bed in hell. David got so angry with those who do not value his life or any human life that he attempted to abort himself. No wonder he's so anxious. He cried, men of blood, depart from me. David is a man of blood. Or at least was a man of blood. Nathan revealed that to him. That's what we talked about in our last psalm. He revealed that. David took the life of Uriah, because he wanted to sleep with Bathsheba, and the son of David. Last time, Psalm 51, we read David's prayer upon being confronted by Nathan the prophet. This is what he cries. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. See, if only there was a judgment that could deliver David from himself. And of course there is. And of course it's not a law. It's the love of God poured out. And of course it's infinitely, infinitely more powerful than any police force or army. We'll talk about this more next time when we continue with this, but, it, but it's perfect love and perfect hatred of all that keeps us in bondage. We love because he first loved us, and nothing is more powerful than love, and love wants you. And so the word of God, by whom and through whom all things were created and are sustained, the love of God in human flesh, the son of David who sank into Sheol and rose the Prince of Peace took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins, drink of it, all of you. Do you hear what the Father is saying? I have all power, and this is how much I want you. There's so much I don't know, but I do know that God wants you, absolutely. I know a sweet and uh, wonderful woman rather close to me who was forced to have a saline abortion at the age of 15. This wasn't supposed to happen, but she saw her baby or the body of her baby, a little girl. 
I know that Jesus has her daughter. I'm not in the least concerned for her daughter, but I am concerned for her and all of those implicated with her and all of those who love her. I think they may have ba- made, they may have made their bed. They have made their bed. I'm, I'm worried. I think they may have made their bed in Sheol, for now they believe the lie that God, our Father, does not want them. She told my wife, I can't go to church, those people. I can't be forgiven. Do you understand? She thinks that she must be aborted from the Jerusalem above her mother and the infinite love of her father, our creator. Maybe you think that way too. So would you just close your eyes for a minute? Just close your eyes. And I want you to imagine yourself floating in a womb. And now listen to the voice of your father. He speaks, and everything moves to the sound of his voice. And this is what he says. I made you. I know you. And I know that you are wonderful. I want you with all I have and all I am. And now if you've you've had an abortion or you've been party to an abortion, I think he also says this to you. Hey, sweetheart, I make all things new. I have all the babies. But would you let me have you? I've always forgiven you. But now will you receive my word of forgiveness? And now with the eyes of your heart, look. You can see his word. His word is Jesus. In one hand, he has a ball of unformed clay. In another hand, he has a seed, and he is the seed. It's kind of like a seed in one hand and an egg in another. 
And you know, you know that when he puts those two things together, he makes you. He is so excited to make you unique and wonderful in all his creation. He's so excited. But how about you? Would you agree with your own creation? Would you let him create you, redeem you, save you, hold you, and enjoy you forevermore? Say this after me. May it be done unto me. You go ahead and say it. May it be done unto me according to your word. Dark cups are wine. Uh, the light cups are juice. We invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of bread, and dip it in the cup, and then place it in your golem. If you're like me, I can preach that he loves us, but I have a hard time sometimes believing he loves me. And I mean me. Maybe you have a hard time believing he loves you. So can we sing that last verse? But I want you to sing. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think about you unique in all creation, with all your weirdnesses, all that stuff, saying, oh, how he loves me, all right? Let's sing. Yeah, he loves me, oh, how he loves me. Isn't he aware of how I don't love me? And how I don't really love the person on my right and my left? And how I totally disregard the sanctity of human life? <laughs> oh, he's very aware. 
In fact, every day of your life has been written in a book. He, he knows it. It's actually part of the gestation process. I think he's revealing to you that you can't pay for his love, and his mercy is free. So in the name of Jesus, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Live from that place, and you will change the world. You see, I, I told you, I didn't tell you how to vote because I really don't know how to vote. And I'm not saying that doesn't matter. I'm saying pray, do what you think is right, but do what Jesus would do. You know, he lived in a society where infanticide was the practice, Roman society. He also lived in a society, of a pharisaical society. I mean, lived in a society that is a lot like ours, I think. And we'll talk about this more next week because I want to flesh this out a little bit, but maybe just a preview. May you speak the truth in love and not be afraid to die. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. And before you go, don't go. If you'd like prayer, you'll notice that I'm standing in the river, and we have uh, prayer team people down here that would love to pray for you. You know, sometimes we need to hear it from somebody else. I had coffee with Todd just left. I told him not to leave, but he left. But I had coffee with Todd this week. Well, there's Todd. And I was just telling Todd, Todd, it does me so much good to just sit at coffee with you and hear you preach the gospel to me, because I really need to hear it. I say it, but you need to hear it from another person. So um, sometimes we just need someone else to look us in the eye and say, in the name of Jesus, you're forgiven. So if you'd like prayer, members, about whatever, members of the prayer team will be down front here. They'd love to pray with you. If you stay in this room, we invite you to continue uh, worshiping. And then when you're, where you leave this room, may you have tacos in Jesus' name. Amen.